Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. We want to read this morning from the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. This is page 1014 in your pew Bibles. We are beginning a series this week on the two letters from the Apostle Peter. So this will be a series that we work through the book of 1st and 2nd Peter. When I began preparing this particular sermon, I'd originally listed out nine verses uh, that I was going to start the sermon with. And by the time I was done preparing notes through verse 2, Uh, I hit my word count. I know my word count for how long a sermon's supposed to last, and I had made it through two verses. I said, okay, we will just do two verses this morning because of one particular phrase uh, that is here in verse 1 that I want to focus our attention on. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles, and there's the phrase, elect exiles, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. If you read there what Peter is saying, that the people of God are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and for the obedience of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning I thank you as we begin this journey uh, into these two letters that the Apostle Peter wrote 2,000 years ago. I pray that uh, you would let your word heal us this morning. Uh, Grant us encouragement and strength from your word as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us uh, in this place and binds us together in one mind, one accord, and one purpose. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before I get into these two verses, I think it's good to talk about who the author is. I don't want to make assumptions that we know who Peter is. It dawned on me a few years ago that reading through the books of First and Second Peter, that I don't know that this really sounds that much like the fishermen that I encounter in the Gospels. This sounds like some great theologian. And Peter is this type A, rough-around-the-edges fisherman who follows Jesus. And I mentioned this to a good friend of mine. I said, how do, we, how do we reconcile this? And he had an, an immediate answer. And he said, it's called 30 years of life experience and growing in the faith. Uh, this is written 30 years after the Peter that we encounter uh, in the Gospels. I didn't know it at the time, but uh, one of the, the books that is most contested on authorship uh, are the books of First and Second Peter. Did Peter really write these? I hold that he did. I've read the arguments against it. And one of the key arguments is that uh, it doesn't sound like the same person. Uh, he, he's, he, he uses, he's too advanced in the language. 
His ideas are, are, are too advanced for what we would expect from a fisherman. And, and part of what convinced me that this is not a good argument is I went back and I've read things that I wrote 10 years ago, just 10 years. And some of it I'm, I'm talking about the quality, not the content, the quality of the writing kind of embarrassed about. I've read stuff that I wrote 20 years ago and went, oh, I wouldn't want anybody to read that. It's not good. It's just not good. It's not very well written. Again, not the content, just the, the quality and the style of the writing. <clears throat> what happens over 30 years? Well, it's like anybody else. Peter uh, advanced as he uh, gave himself to ministry and grew in the faith. Uh, it's, it's Peter 2.0 uh, later on down in, in the epistles than it is this guy that Jesus calls by the seaside. Another thing to point out is that the New Testament is so dominated by the Apostle Paul that often people like Peter and other writers get overlooked. Paul is a very fallible man, a fallible person. Uh, he, he's, he's brilliant. I don't know of anyone whose writings have been studied more the last 2,000 years. We've talked about this before, how if we read all of Peter, we could start right now, or all of Paul, we could start right now and read everything that Paul wrote and be done by this afternoon. And yet, for 2,000 years, millions upon millions of words have been spilled on paper and in sermons unpacking what Paul wrote. But let's not overlook Peter. His words we regard as equally divinely inspired as the Apostle Paul. And as I found out preparing this, I couldn't get past op the opening two verses uh, in this book uh, because there's so much here to see and to say. So Peter was one of the 12 disciples. He is one of the most prominent ones talked about in Scripture. This is the man who denied Jesus and cursed and then wept bitterly. This is the man who said, Jesus, others may forsake you, but I'll never forsake you. And of course, he falls short on that promise. This is the man who in the garden cuts off a man's ear. He pulls out the sword and cuts off this man's ear, trying to defend his master. This is the man who preached the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. I think you only have to look to that and see what Peter is saying on the day of Pentecost and reconcile that against, that's the same Peter within a very short time frame. Peter starts telling the whole history of the Old Testament and reconciling Jesus as the one that was spoken of in the Old Testament. Even in Acts 2, it doesn't feel like the same Peter, but it is. Peter is bold and brash and speaks his mind. He and his brother Andrew were from the region called Galilee. They were fishermen's fisherman by trade, and it's possible that he sometimes still worked his trade while with Jesus, and even possibly during the apostolic age after the resurrection of Christ. Paul was a tent maker. These men were not independently wealthy. There's no reason to think that they did not continue at some level to uh, work a job. Peter was married. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that Peter and other married leaders took their wives with them on their missionary trips. I say all this and point all this out because I want us to see that Peter is an ordinary man. He's a guy with a job and a wife. We don't know children, possibly, likely, whatever the uh, 
average person of that day was doing. Peter was an average man in that day. Matthew chapter 4, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sees two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. That's the first time we encounter Peter in Scripture. And little did Peter know that his decision that day was going to start a lifetime adventure that would immortalize him in history. I mean, you can imagine Peter's this regular guy, fisherman, and you said, hey, Peter, in 2,000 years, people are going to be talking about what you wrote. And be like, yeah, right. Uh, nobody's going to remember me after I die. Uh, but it would immortalize him by following Jesus. But it would also cost him his life. In the year 64, on July 18th, that evening, a fire started in Rome. Now, I, I think there's a tendency maybe for some people to picture Rome 2,000 years ago as this like Stone Age city. It's not. Um, you could go on YouTube and look at computer uh, recreations of what Rome looked like. We know this because a lot of the buildings are still standing there, some of them very well intact. But this is a massive city. This is a metropolitan area. This is a city that even today would be impressive. And on July 18th in the year 64, a fire starts in the shops that were right outside Circus Maximus. Circus Maximus was a chariot racing stadium that held 150,000 people. So picture NASCAR, insert chariots, and you kind of have the idea of what this is like. 150,000 people to see chariot races. Today, you can go there. The building is uh, gone, but it's a public park. Uh, it's a real place that really existed. But that fire destroyed 70% of the city. Rome was divided up into 14 districts. It completely destroyed three of the districts, and seven other ones were almost completely wiped out by this fire. Fire was nothing new in Rome. It was it looked at times like it was made to burn. It was so densely packed. People are constantly heating their homes, cooking with fire. I mean, fire is an everyday reality in the lives of all people. So it's only natural that there would be fires. And there is a list in history of before this of numerous fires, but none of them so great as the year 64. Besides destroying most of the city, Rome was under the rule of an evil and wicked emperor named Nero. And it gave Nero the opportunity to make Christians the scapegoat for the fire. Nero was a truly evil man. Now you can look through uh, Nero and after for the next 250 years, the men who ruled Rome uh, were, were horrible, horrible people. Um, they would be put in prison today for the crimes that they committed. Uh, but Nero, he has a power struggle with his mother, so he has her murdered. Um, probably his wife kicks his wife in the stomach, kills her, uh, has his stepbrother killed. Uh, and this is just a, a small section of his crimes. His own life would end in suicide. There have been accusations that Nero himself started the fire. We don't know if that's true. I, everything I read, probably not. But either way, what he does is he blames the Christians. The Christians start the fire. And this is his opportunity to punish them. 
So he throws them to wild beasts. They put animal skins on the Christian and throw them to wild dogs to be torn limb to limb. There are a lot of Christians who were crucified in Rome at this time. And he puts them up on poles and he burns them to light his garden. That's what it meant to be a Christian in Rome in the year 64. The Bible does not record it, but history tells us that Peter died during that great persecution sometime in the year late in that year 64, sometime in uh, 65. To be a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ has meant in much of history you are risking your life for what you believe and what you proclaim. You can smell the smoke of the coming persecution in the letter that Peter writes. We don't get it yet, but if we're, and we will as we go on, we're going to see that this is a people that are under persecution, even at this time. It's not as if the persecution just starts, but it, 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 it takes uh, flight and accelerates after this fire. But even while Peter is writing this, uh, which we think is right not too long before this fire starts and the persecution starts, uh, we can feel it. Later on in 1 Peter, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, in the context of this verse, if you look at the verses around it, Peter is not talking about trials that spiritual forces send their way when he says fiery trial. He's talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. I know you don't see it in that verse, but if you read the context, because uh, we have fiery trials that life sends our way that isn't for persecution. We have fiery trials that could come from Satan. This is a fiery trial that is specific to you being a believer. It is believed that this letter was written sometime in the mid-60s while Peter was in Rome, and it's written probably shortly before his death. We see Peter use the word Babylon in chapter 5 as a representation for Rome. Now, there are many interpretations of who Babylon is in the book of Revelation. Uh, I regard this as consistent language, namely that in Revelation that Babylon refers to the Roman Empire. And that is disputed, but it is rarely disputed that in 1 Peter 5, when he refers to Babylon, he is referring to Rome. So if Peter is writing from Rome where he lives, who is he writing the letter to? 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, where are these places? Well, if you were to look at a map, these places are all today modern-day Turkey. That's He's writing from Rome to these cities in Turkey. And if you read the order, they kind of go clockwise. This is going to be a message uh, that's going to be delivered, and they're going to pass these circular through the cities, through the churches in this region. In the verse 2, there is the word dispersion, and it refers to what we call the diaspora. Now, what is a diaspora? A diaspora is when a, a group of people are scattered. It's a dispersion. So, this could be referring to the dispersion of the Jews from their homeland. When Peter writes this in the first century, there are more Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt, than there are living in Jerusalem. The Jews have been scattered all over the world. It also could be referring to the, the dispersion or scattering of Christians from Jerusalem because of persecution. So the, the church starts in Jerusalem, but persecution causes them to be spread throughout the world. God used the persecution of believers in Jerusalem as the mechanism 
through which the world would be evangelized. Because the Christians aren't leaving Jerusalem. They're, they're all here. And God says, no, I want you to go to Jerusalem and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so persecution, and this is the way it works. It is often the case that suffering is the mechanism that God uses to spread the gospel. So I think Peter could have had either option in mind. Uh, it makes sense uh, because the first believers in Christ were Jews, so both options could apply. However, I think the option for Peter to be speaking to believers who were scattered because of their faith is probably the primary uh, reason, he says, to the dispersion to the people who have been scattered throughout the world because of their faith. The idea of believers being exiles is common language in the New Testament. Hebrews 13, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's us. We are strangers and exiles in this earth. And the rest of the book of 1 Peter also indicates that he is writing to believers who are now exiles. The description of, of who he's writing to uh, it appears that he's writing to Christians who have been scattered because of their faith. But we are not just exiles. We're not just any kind of exile. We are elect exiles. How are we elect? And Peter says, you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now think about that phrase, elect, that's the positive, and you're exiles. You've been scattered because of your faith. You are chosen wanderers. You are ordained to be vagabonds. There is the positive and there is the negative. To be elected by God means He has chosen you for great things in His kingdom, and it can also mean that you have been ordained to suffer for His name's sake. I want to say that again. That may be the crux of everything that this sermon sits on. To be elected by God means He has chosen you for great things in His kingdom. It can also mean you have been ordained by God to suffer for His namesake. That is exactly how most of the people of God have felt throughout all of church history. Luke 21, Jesus said, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness." Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how you ought to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and by brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. And the next phrase after he says, some of you will be put to death, he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then he says, and not a head on your hair shall perish. Some of you will die for your faith, and not a hair on your head will perish. That doesn't make any sense. Jesus. What do you mean, Jesus? You just said they're going to kill us, and not one hair on my head is going to perish. Jesus says, yes, because you can kill me, but you can't harm me. 
I am eternal. You are eternal because the eternal God lives within us. Even if they kill us for our faith, they can't harm us. That's your election. That's the promise from God. We will elect a president this year. I am so excited that I get to hear about this for the next 10 months. I just nonstop, that's what's going to be on the news. The news cycle will be focused on this for the next 10 months. The election that really matters, that no one's going to talk about in the news, is your election to his kingdom. That's the election that matters. The guy that's elected in this election, or woman, whoever it is, they're going to die. They're going to die. They're going to be a footnote in a history book somewhere. We assume the United States is just going to last forever. I mean, it's hard for us to comprehend that this nation could ever not exist. Um, the Roman Empire at their heyday dominated most of the world. Not all of it, but most of the world was dominated. It would be it would have been unthinkable to anyone in the Roman Empire that this could ever cease to exist. I've written a massive book. It's been very popular over the decades, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's been documented. It's interesting that a lot of the things that caused the decline and fall of the Roman Empire internally because it happens internally no one from outside of rome could could cause rome to topple there was no one so powerful was it to be a roman citizen that you could walk through anywhere dangerous in the world and that they called it the pax romana the peace of rome to be a Roman citizen, you were untouchable throughout the whole world. No one would touch a Roman citizen. This is in the Bible. They, they punish Paul. And the next day, Paul says, it's in the book of Acts, I'm a Roman citizen. And the, the government pulls him up and says, why didn't you tell us this? Why didn't you let us know you were a Roman citizen? It's hard for us to wrap our head around that we too could fail. The Roman Empire lasted a lot longer than what our nation has been uh, in existence for. There are no guarantees. Everything that happens in our nation's history, given enough time, will be a footnote in a history book. But your election to grace is eternal. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The unity of the Father and the Son was framed by Jesus within the conversation that you as a child of God are untouchable. If you have been forgiven, justified, and sanctified, you will be glorified. There is no devil, there is no person, there is no persecution that can snatch you out of his hand. You are secure in him. Elect exiles. 
back and forth between divine favor of election and divine appointment to be an alien in this world. There's a man named Bob Welch who was a newspaper columnist in Eugene, Oregon. He retired 10 years ago, 2013, from the newspaper in Eugene, Oregon. He's, Bob's around 70 now. Bob is the reason why we first went to Oregon. I've got to spend a full eight hours Saturday in his home. Uh, went there for a writing workshop that he hosted in his home. That was our introduction to Oregon. He's the one that introduced us to where to go, and, and that's how we came to fall in love with the Pacific Northwest. And after being retired for 10 years, this year he uh, started a blog, uh, released his first post two or three days ago. And Bob is not a political writer at all. Very little of what he has written about has been political. It's not what he's known for. But he wrote a book here three or four years ago called Cross Purposes, where he detailed something that I firmly believe, and that is that the partnership between the conservative evangelical church in America and right-wing politics, the partnership between the church and politics, has not been good for the kingdom. So just this week, Bob wrote, My deep dive into politics became for me a catalyst for personal change, forcing me to decide where my priorities lay, in God's kingdom or in far-right conservatism conservatism. The evangelical thirst for power did not square with the humility of Jesus I'd been taught for nearly half a century. The urgency to win and the fear of losing, I saw nothing biblical in this evangelical panic to prevail. That said, I realized an uncomfortable truth. Until facing this crucible, I'd been complicit in the evangelical drift away from the things of God to the things of man. I'd allowed my faith to be increasingly defined not by biblical Jesus, but by a conservative culture. For decades, I had assumed that in the motorcycle of Christian faith, the sidecar of far-right politics had to come along for the ride. But a frightening new matrix had emerged. The far-right was no longer the sidecar. It was riding the bike, and the evangelical faith was just along for the ride. I wanted out of the sidecar. But to speak up could, among evangelicals, cost me friends, respect, and money. Those who disagreed with me weren't apt to buy my books or ask me to speak at their events. I decided that's a risk I'd have to take because I couldn't stay silent. He published his book and could not find a single Christian publisher to take his book. He had to self-publish because a man who has been well-published by publishers in the past, <clears throat> no one would touch this. The American church sees her coziness with political power as an immunization against persecution. I have my rights. The first century church in the Roman Empire was afforded no such luxury. Peter would not have any idea what that looked like. How much do we really know about being exiles in this world? All of us, myself included. How much do we know about being exiles? Elect, yes, we embrace that marker as our identity as believers. We are elect. Even as He chose us, Paul wrote, in Him, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. 
It's easy to embrace that, and we should. Scripture, I embrace my election to Him. But exiles, I don't know how much we really know about that. If we are exiles, who or what are we exiled from? How uncomfortable are we living in this culture as believers? How uncomfortable does the culture make us when we identify as believers? If we're exiles, who is it that cast us out? Who exiled us? Who shunned us and told us that we can't be apart? What characteristics are on display in my life and your life that may repel friends or family or coworkers or even other believers? How are we exiles? My rejection in this world begins with my election in Christ. They are intertwined. They are inseparable. If I am to be elect, then I am to be an exile. Now that's not, that's not going out of your way to tick off the culture. That's not going out of your way. Years ago there was a song that uh, said, I'm an oddball for Jesus. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Well, if you're an oddball, don't blame Jesus. Maybe you're just an oddball. It's like, that has nothing to do with Jesus. I'm not saying about going out of your way. Uh, I'm just saying by living out your faith, living out the biblical values in this world, it will cause you to be alienated. They are intertwined. He says, so according to the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and of the Son. So what does that mean? So God is always, always Father, God is always Son, and God is always Holy Spirit. He does not occupy these identities like offices. He doesn't shift modes of being to become one, and I'm going to be, operate as the Father, I'm going to operate as the Son over here. Um, he doesn't cease to exist to be any of these three. When we say the Father... I point this out because this is right here in the text. So we want to be clear. When we say the Father, we mean all of God, not one-third of God. When we say the Son, we mean all of God. When you think Son, you think all of God. When you say the Holy Spirit, all of God. Why? Because God is simple. You cannot understand the Godhead without understanding, starting with the point that God is simple. Now, when we say a person is simple, sometimes we use that as an insult. We mean they're not that bright. I mean God is simple in that He is one. He is not made up of parts. There is no division within God. There's one essence, one being. As God, as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit, there is one center of consciousness. There is one will. You, you, you don't think about God as like three guys sitting around the table with three different wills and they just all happen to always agree. That, that idea specifically is called social Trinitarianism. It's a very dangerous idea. It is not orthodox Christianity. But it has dominated the landscape within all of Christianity the last several decades. This idea of social Trinitarianism, it is bordering upon some things that could be considered heresy, and namely what we would call tritheism, that now there's three separate gods. We are monotheists, there is one God. 
He exists eternally as God the Father, as God the Son, as God the Holy Spirit. The church confesses this, but there are not three centers of consciousness. There are not three wills. It is indivisible. To know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to know God in His completeness. And I think this is what Peter is trying to get us to see, is that we are elect according to the fullness of of who God is. When Peter says we are elect exiles, he says it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. The Father is God in His transcendence. What does God in His transcendence mean? This is how God reveals Himself mostly in the Old Testament. We see indications in some of the Psalms uh, for the Son of God. It's not even implied. It is pretty direct in some of these psalms. But for the most part, God is in His transcendence in the Old Testament. What does that mean? That means that God is above humanity. He's eternal and He is really unable to be comprehended comprehended by mankind. The Son of God in His incarnation, Jesus Christ, reveals God to us as the God-man. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the exact imprint of His nature, the book of Hebrews says. So to know Jesus in the Gospels is to know the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh revealed and manifested in flesh. The Holy Spirit is God in us as He manifests His power and presence inside of us. No longer is He just transcendent, but God who is Spirit, that's His nature, dwells inside of us and He sanctifies us and our bodies become His temple. And Paul or Peter says... You see how dominant Paul is? It can't, I can't help but say Paul. I'm so used to saying Paul. It's not Paul, it's Peter. Peter says that you are elect in the transcendence of the Father and in the incarnation of the Son and in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. That's how you are elect exiles. In other words, you're not here by accident. The Father and His transcendence look down through time in eternity past. God has no beginning. There never was a time when God was not. There was a time when the universe was not, when matter was not, when everything was not. There never was a time when God is not. You and I can't comprehend that. Everything has a beginning. Everything has dimensions. Everything in our life has a beginning and an end. You can measure. God cannot be measured. Go back. Just make up a number. The biggest number you can imagine. A trillion, trillion years of time. Go back, and God is there. He has always been. I I can't wrap my head around that. And in that eternity past, God saw before the foundation of the world, before there was any creation, He saw you here today. Remember, God doesn't dwell in time. God dwells in eternity. God is in tomorrow as real as He is in right now. Think about it. God exists 10 years from now. He is there already 10 years from now because He's eternal, just like He is in today. That means when I wake up in the morning, God didn't show up there with me. He was already there waiting on me. He already knows when my feet hit the floor what's going to happen, what's going on. God is in control. Before there was any of this, He saw us here today, and He saw us as elect exiles. And as the fire in Rome raged, Nero plotted his revenge against a group of helpless people who did not have the sidecar hitched to the engine of Roman politics. 
They were defenseless. They were Christians fed to wild animals, torn apart, crucified. They were covered. They tell us that Nero would take these Christians and he would first cover them with tar or with oil and attach them to the post. And that's how they would light the city. Just burning Christians alive. And you're Peter, and you're living in the middle of all this. Now, remember this. Peter knows how he is going to die. I don't know how I'm going to die. You don't know how you're going to die. How am I going to die? I have no idea. I hope in old age, but like what method? Like what is going to kill me? Something eventually is going to kill me. Inevitable. I don't know what it is. Peter does. Peter knew for 30 years how he would die because Jesus told him. John 21, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old... You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, John adds commentary in your Bibles. It's in parenthesis. John adds commentary and says, Jesus said this to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. So John hears these words, writes them down, and says, Oh, Jesus told Peter how he was going to die. Don Carson, who... I don't know of anyone more reliable, one of the most brilliant minds in all of Christianity today. Uh, Don Carson, his commentary, says that the saying to stretch out your hands was already known in the ancient world to refer to crucifixion. It was a saying that that's how they stretch out your hands. It meant to be crucified. The Apostle John takes it this way because he comments that it's how Peter is going to glorify God in his death. Peter is going to die the same way Jesus is going to die. And he knows this for 30 years. After Jesus tells Peter this, he tells Peter this, and then you know, he's already called him before by the seaside as a fisherman, but now Peter's following him, and Peter says, and Jesus says to Peter, you're going to be crucified when you're old. Now come follow me. If I tell you today, um, you're going to die in such and such way, and you know it's going to be because of me, let's go. Oh, it's not going to be a car accident. You're not going to get shot. You're going to die in the most horrific way imaginable to human beings. You're going to have your feet and hands nailed to a cross, and you're going to die um, through asphyxiation. You're going to have to push yourself up uh, with your feet with nails in them, which is going to be excruciating pain, but you'll do it because blood is filling your lungs. Your lungs are filling with fluid. That's what's killing you. So you'll raise yourself up to get a breath, and when you can't take it anymore, you'll let yourself down. Um, they know this is what happens. Jesus is not the only person crucified. It's a common way to kill criminals. The Roman government kills criminals this way. The first century historian Josephus says, when you go into Rome, you go into Rome and on both sides of the road there are criminals crucified. It's a statement loud and clear to say, if you commit a crime in this town, this will be your end. Everybody knows what crucifixion is. Peter lives for 30 years with this hanging over his head. Someday I'm going to die through cruc crucifixion. I don't think you forget that. 
I don't remember everything everybody said to me 30 years ago, but I'm pretty sure if someone told me 30 years ago, you're going to die of crucifixion, and it's somebody I trust, that is etched and burned into my mind. I am dying this horrific death. And then Peter sees Jesus on the cross. He saw others who were criminals on crosses. He knows how horrible it is. And he knows if he obeys Jesus, he's going to meet the same fate. And yet he still follows Jesus. Now the Bible doesn't say this. But tradition says that when Peter was crucified, he had one request. Turn me upside down. I am not worthy to die in the manner that my Savior died. And history, tradition says they honored that request and they nailed Peter to a cross and they turned the cross upside down and that's how he died. And John says that's how he glorified God. None of us knows what the future holds, but if we stay in the same trajectory as a culture, the people of God are going to feel more and more scrutiny that may in time turn into actual persecution. It's already happening in other countries. This sermon is the biblical answer and encouragement to us who are exiles. And the encouragement is this. The Father has chosen you. The Son of God has cleansed you with His blood. And the Spirit of God has sanctified you and dwells in your body. That's the encouragement. And that's enough. That's all we need. And if that is true, and according to Peter it is, then nothing else matters. Peter knows he will die a horrible death, and it doesn't matter to Peter, because God has chosen him, God has cleansed him, and God has sanctified him. That's what Peter is saying. I am chosen, I'm cleansed in the blood, and I'm sanctified by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul also dies under the persecution of Nero within three years of Peter. So Paul is in Rome, Peter is in Rome. They both meet their fate under Nero. And it doesn't matter because God has also chosen Paul and cleansed Paul with his blood and sanctified Paul with his Holy Spirit. And 2,000 years ago, Job's not going well, family relations aren't the best, money is tight, society has lost its ever-loving mind, maybe persecution is coming, doesn't matter. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Why? Because we have the words of Peter, and we embrace them, and we claim them not just to be written to elect exiles scattered around Turkey, but they are written for our admonition. They are written to us. We take that and we say, it's not just the saints in Cappadocia and Asia and Pontus, but it's the saints in Dallas and Wiley and Rhode Island and all over the world today, 2024. It's for us in this room. We are elect exiles. We are chosen. We are cleansed. And we are sanctified. And that's our hope. And that's enough. The only encouragement any of us should need is the fact that there is an empty tomb. That there was a man who came off a cross, put in a tomb, and that tomb today is empty. 
That's the encouragement I need. He died, he resurrected, he ascended into the heavens, he makes intercession for the saints. And the end result of all of this is already written. <clears throat> I wish and I would plead with people to read the book of Revelation for what it is. It is the promise that in the end, Jesus Christ and his kingdom wins. That's it. It is a message of hope that how we get there, all of that, it's we win. Jesus wins. The kingdom wins. They may kill you for your faith, but not a hair on your head will perish. Let's pray. Holy God, this morning we have looked into just a few words of Scripture and we have pulled so much encouragement from these words that Peter wrote. We thank you for these words. Uh, that we understand our identity in this world to be elect exiles, uh, elected by you, chosen by you before the foundation of the world through the foreknowledge of God the Father, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, now sanctified through the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And Father, we don't know what will come in our nation and our world in the hours and days and weeks and months and years to come. If the last five years has taught us anything, it's that no man knows the future. We don't know what battles, struggles, conflict will ensue. But what we do know is that you hold us in your hand. You said no one can snatch us from your hand, Lord. So we exalt in that security. We exalt in that promise. We claim it. It's ours. We are secure in Christ alone. Father, I pray that as we go our ways for this week and we encounter real life and job and relationships and all the things that we do to live in this life, that the practical side of life that we live uh, would be met with the beautiful and glorious truth that is in your word, and that the truth of your word would triumph in every situation, and that, Lord, that we would look back, not to our feelings, but to our faith, uh, to your word, and to your promise. And we ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And dismissal, let's lift our hands and thank him for his word, for his spirit, for his promise. Jesus, thank you this morning uh, for this promise. I know that we all believe it's true, but I pray that you would help us to embrace it, Father. And so we thank you for this in the coming days, Lord, that we are going to exalt in this truth and meditate upon this, Lord, that we are elect exiles in this world. And for that, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning.